When they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on, on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches. From the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into the city or into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from the Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee. And of course, I read that to you this morning um, because today in the liturgical calendar is recognized as Palm Sunday, this uh, memorial, a memorial of this event that we read here when um, Christ was uh, put on the donkey and he was rode in and he was declared to be the king by the people. And it's interesting that Justin would choose that first song, which had the word Hosanna in it. And, and when, the, when the people were quoting, the way that Jewish culture worked, just so you know, is, is often they would refer to, uh, 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 they all didn't have the Old Testament writings before them. Scrolls and paper were hard to come by. But if you were a good Jew, you memorized and you knew the Word of God. And, and one of the ways that they would prompt their memory or speak to one another is, is they would quote just pieces of a passage and it would bring forth a remembrance in the mind of the people that they were speaking to of, of, of perhaps that Old Testament reference. And when people when the people here were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it was a quote from a reference to Psalm 18. And, and, and the reason why I point that out to you this morning, because that word Hosanna means save now we pray. And that's what the people were calling, is they believed that Jesus was going to rise up, take a throne, overthrow the Roman Empire, and lead them into victory over their captors as they were enslaved by them. And they were praying, save now we pray, son of David. And they were speaking specifically to the throne of David that they were wishing and believing that Jesus would take up at that time. If you want to turn over with me to Psalm uh, 118, it's, it's, it's not by any kind of irony or any by coincidence that they were quoting this, even though it was unbeknownst to them the, 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 at the time of what this psalm, Psalm 18, is really speaking about. It's a messianic psalm, speaking about the Messiah and what he was going to do. But it even spoke about the mission of Jesus Christ at that time. And the truth of the matter is that he didn't come to rule and reign at that point. He came to be a sacrifice, that, that sin sacrifice, so that people might be saved, so that sins could be forgiven. Um, and I want to pick back, I want to pick up in Psalm 18 in verse 19. In verse 19, psalmist, we're kind of sticking, picking up in the middle, but in Psalm 19, or, or Psalm 118, verse 19, it says, open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteousness shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And we know from the writings of Paul in the New Testament that he also quotes that and makes that as a direct, direct reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ being the cornerstone which was rejected 
that has become the chief cornerstone. And it says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so it speaks of the rejection that Christ would undergo shortly after this event, when people were crying out, uh, Hosanna to him. And then verse 24 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And now verse 25, Hosanna, or save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord and has given us light. And then this seems to be way out of place in relationship to to this praise and this worship and this save now we pray. But then in this Messianic Psalm, it says, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And that was speaking specifically of the atonement sacrifice that was made once a year on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. And they're talking about this, this king, this mighty warrior at this point coming in on this and to save them, but also he's gonna he's being likened to the sacrifice right here. This is the psalm they referenced. They didn't they didn't get it. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And I, I wanted to point that out because, again, it's just a reminder for us that of the work that Christ came to do, and as we're going through the book of Revelation, we see of the work that Christ is still yet coming to do. And, and um, we give thanks and praise to God for the salvation that we've received. And one of the things that we're going to read today in chapter 21 is, is that we're, we're defined, we're called, those who have put our faith in Jesus, we're called overcomers. And it's through the blood of Lamb, it's through the sacrifice, through His life being offered up, because He came to save. So, if you look at Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to read now from there, and uh, let me turn there as well so I can read, and um, if you'll follow along, it says in verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be his people, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then, verse 5, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then verse 9, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last or the seven filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the city, the great city, the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels, and the gates and on the and, and twelve angels at the gates, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the tw- of the of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. And the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And it measured the city, and he measured the city with the reed. 
12,000 furlongs is its breadth and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, <coughs> 140 cubits, according to a measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of the wall was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third um, Caledony and the fourth emerald, and the fifth Sardux, and the seventh Sardis, and the, or excuse me, and, and the sixth Sardis, and the seventh Chrysolite, and the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth um, uh, Chrysophrase, and the eleventh Jacinth, and the twelfth Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each individual gate of one pearl, and the street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine it, for the glory of God illuminated. The Lamb is its light, and the nation of those who were saved walked or shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring her glory to honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means, or they shall by no means enter it any that defiles or causes any abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, as we get to read about your holy city, this future dwelling place for those who are called by your name, those who have overcome those who will inherit all things, those who, whose names are, are found written in the, in, the, in the Lamb's book of life. I pray, God, that, um, that, nobody, that there would be no one who would leave here today without knowing that this is their future dwelling place. I pray, God, that you would be speaking to us through your Spirit and, by the, and through your Word and, and, and in, in power and in might, God, so that we might... Um, be drawn to you so that we might know you more, so that we might understand spiritual things. God, I pray you would use me, that you would speak through me, and that it would be your words that would be spoken. Father, we're in need of your wisdom, and you tell us that if we're in need, that if we ask, you'll freely give. We trust and believe in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the best way is to summarize this chapter and the last chapter of this book. There's only two left, this one and the next one that we're going to get to next week. But the best way to summarize these last two chapters is to direct your attention back to the words that God speaks here in verse in verse 5 and then in verse 6, where God first says in verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. And then in verse 6, we read God saying, It is done. Those two statements, those two phrases really give us a, a, an overview, a summarization of these last chapters. And in these chapters, we see that what began in the book of Genesis is brought to completion here in the book of Revelation. If you remember, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, I've made an ongoing comparison between it, the book of Revelation, and the book of Genesis. By pointing out that like the book of Genesis, in that it's a, it's a book of beginning which tells us um, the uh, tells us really how all things began. This book, the book of Revelation, is a book of endings which tells us how all things come to an end. And um, we place certain events, and when we place certain events recorded in the book of Genesis that talks about the beginning of all things alongside the events that are recorded here for us in chapter 21, we see some pretty cool stuff. We see God's creative and redemption hand and redemptive hand in a unique way. God, God's creative and God's redemptive hand working together in a really unique way. Taking notes, I'm going to point out a few things. For example, you'll need to turn there, but if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we are told, right, the first book, the first verse of the Bible, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here in chapter 21, verse 1, we're told that God will create a new heaven and a new earth because the first will have passed away. Also in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, we read that in the beginning, God created the light, which was the sun for day, day and the moon for the night. And here in chapter 21, 
verse 23, if you can look over there, it tells us that there is an end. That, there will, that, that, that in the end there will be no need for the sun or for the moon because Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be the light. Also in Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, we read that in the beginning God gathered together all the waters of the earth and created the seas. Yet here, according to verse 1, that in the end the sea will be no more. And when you read through um, all of Genesis chapter 3, but I think it's specifically verse 17. But if you read in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us that in the beginning, because of man's sin, and this is when we look to the redemptive side of it uh, in comparison to the way things began, because in the beginning, according to chapter 3, man's sin, as a result of it, all of creation was cursed. Not just men, not just humankind, but all of creation was cursed. And as a result, we're told that death entered in and sorrow and pain began. But here, on the redemptive side of it, in, Genesis, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we read that in the end there shall be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death. Why? It says, for the former things have passed away. And in light of this future passing away, the apostle Peter wrote to the early church, and he instructed them. Now, this is where we gather some of the application, okay? You can look to some of the letters that the, that the apostles in, wrote to the early churches when they also talked about these same doctrinal things because they make it real simple for us and going, hey, this is why you need to know this. This is how it applies to your life. This is why it's important. Apostle, in Peter, in 2 Peter, in chapter 3, he writes, speaking about this again in verses 10 through 13, he says this, he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. He even describes it for us a little bit further. He says, in the elements, the very things, the compound, the, 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 the building blocks the, 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 on the atomic level, he says, the elements themselves will melt away with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with the fervent heat. So, so Paul, Peter writes and he goes, okay guys, okay church, knowing that this is going to happen, how are you living your life? What kind of an example are you be? How are you working, in other words, to serve God and to serve the people so that the, so that the day of the Lord may come, so that it may be hastened? He goes on and he said, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, here's the other part of it, is we're looking, we look for the new heavens. What are you looking to? What, are your, what is your focus on in this life today? Is it to these things? God's making it known to us for a reason. And he says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The point is, is for us who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and for those of us who love him and keep his commandments, these quote-unquote new things that we're reading about here in chapter 21, these are the descriptions of the things that we're looking forward to. I don't know about you, but there's some pretty good things. I like them. Remember, we're told over and over again, we are not citizens of this earth. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. This is not our home. We're not citizens of this earth, which is going to pass away. And because we're citizens, that means that we're not going to pass away because we're citizens of a greater kingdom. We're citizens of God's kingdom and of this heavenly city which is going to, to endure as we read here for all of eternity. So we live with the knowledge of these promises and we look with hopeful expectation to the day when God will make all things new. Now as we jump into our text, we see in these first eight verses, what I want you to look at as we kind of go through this is we see three defining characteristics of a citizen of this new Jerusalem. 
Three defining characteristics of those who live or who will live in this new Jerusalem. And in the first, first, in the first verses, five verses, one through five, the first thing that we're told is that the citizens of this city are God's people. And that's important. That may seem like a, well, no duh, but what we're being told is that it's an exclusive dwelling place. And it's for God's people. And if you look to verses 1 through 5 with me as we begin to go through this, I want to point out that the Bible teaches us that when God created the first heavens and the first earth, it was for Adam and Eve and their descendants. In fact, we're told as you study through the book of Genesis clearly that God had perfectly prepared everything for them before he placed them in the garden. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve, the father of all humanity, the father and mother of all humanity, we know that they rebelled against God. And because of, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, death and decay flooded in to the creation, into the perfect world that God had created. Since then, as we look back until to, to, and, and, and forward into today that we are living in now, since then, all of creation Bible clearly tells us has been in bondage. Not only that, that it's being oppressed. And even though the creation is still a wondrous and amazing thing which reveals to us God's glory and His eternal power to us, as Paul writes in the book of Romans, we have to keep in mind that the creation is currently just a shadow of the perfection that it once was. And the fact of the matter is is that anyone can look around and see the negative effects that man's sin has caused on God's creation. And because um, the creation has been infected and corrupted with man's sin, it too must pass away. But fortunately for us, God has promised to create a new heaven. He's promised to create a new earth. And His promise to do so is found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, God said this, He said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Also in Matthew chapter 19, you may remember this if you studied through the Gospel accounts, but in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus talked about this new heaven and this new earth, and He referred to it as the regeneration. The word that is used there is the Greek word pelegenesia. And this word is a compound word made up of two Greek words that means a new birth. But in its compound form, like what we read there, the regeneration, it specifically refers to the production of new life that is consecrated or set apart to God. It's not just a new birth, it's a birth or a new birth that is specifically set apart or consecrated unto God. And the interesting thing is is that the same Greek word is only used two other times in Scripture. One is found in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And and in both of these instances, as it is here in in Titus 3, 5, it's used to describe the very new birth that you and I experienced when we became followers of Jesus Christ. And when we became a new thing, the Bible tells us a new thing that had been consecrated or set apart to God. How? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So in regards to the new heaven and the new earth that we read about here, that God is going to create, the idea is that it's going to be something new. Unlike that of what it is now. And according to what we read here in verse 1, and what, we already, what I already read to you in 2 Peter chapter 3, we see that before a new can come, the old must pass away. It's exactly what Paul writes about his own conversion. You remember what he says? He says, all things have become and all, and all the old things have passed away. That regeneration, that, that paglegenesis. The old must pass away, and when it does pass away, the very elements with which the heavens and the earth are currently made up of will burn away with the fervent heat. Now, when it comes to the construction of the new heaven and of the new earth, verse 1, if you look there, 
it tells us that there will no longer be any sea, no oceans. Even though we're not told why there will no longer be any seas, I find it very interesting. And so I want to speculate just a little bit with you. And this is opinion. I think it's a good opinion, but just so you know, it's just opinion. It's not defining the Word of God. And the reason why I want to point this out there is because there's a reason for why there's not going to be any seas. And it's not because um, when the old things pass away that somehow seafood doesn't taste good any longer. Think about it. When we consider that, that the new creation, one of the things that's going to be a defining attribute of the new creation is there's no longer going to be any sin. There's no longer going to be any death. Death will have passed away. And when we look at that in light of what we read here, I think we can see a possible reason for why there won't be any seas. And this is due to the fact that the seven seas of the earth, which contains 95% of all of the earth's water, that, that they, these seas, this water, they work together to cleanse the earth. In fact, right now, 70% of the earth's surface is covered by salt water. And the combined average depth of all of these seas is two and one-third mile deep. Now, there are some places that are shallower and there are some places that are deeper, but when you take the average, it's two and a third miles deep. And the percentage of salt that, that they, the, these waters contain is 3.5%, which is... Which is 4.5 ounces of salt water per gallon of water. And by the way, if you want to use water or salt water as an antiseptic, which it is often used as, that's the exact ratio that a doctor will tell you to use. Imagine that God knew that from the beginning. And as a result, this salt water, which covers so much of the surface of the earth, it really acts as a natural antiseptic to purify the earth of all of the death and decay that has come as a result of the fall. Imagine if we didn't have that. And all the death and all of the decay that the oceans take care of naturally that God's provided, how putrid and, and awful it would be without that. But there's no need in heaven Possibly, and at least one of the reasons, or in this new heaven and this new earth, is because there's no longer any death. So with a new heaven and a new earth that will be free from death and corruption, we no longer see a need for the purifying capabilities of the sea. Now, even though John reports the absence of the seas in this new heaven and the new earth, he does tell of seeing a city there. A city called New Jerusalem. And even though there is a detailed description of the city that we read through in verses 19 or 9 through 27, and really I just want to point out to you because I don't think we're going to get into much detail of this at the, in the end of our study, but chapter 22 gives us an interior description of this city. What we read here in verses 9 through 27 is just an exterior. It's just if you're standing on the outside and you're looking and you've seen the gates and the foundation and the walls, and that's being described. Even better, next week is when you read the first verses of chapter 22 as we see what it's going to be like on the inside, the place where we're going to be. But even as we see all of these things, you can take chapter 22 and read ahead and you can reread verses 9 through 27 and, and get this detailed description. And, and as you look at it and you see at it, truly, even with the details we're given, it's difficult to wrap our minds around what the new Jerusalem will be like because truthfully, I can't picture streets made out of gold. But that's what it's going to be like. Yet here in verse 2, one of the things that I want to point out to you in, in regards to the description is the first thing we see, more so than the streets being like gold or, or made of gold, the, one of the things that we see here is more important is we're told that it's a holy city. And what that means is it will be a place of righteousness. A place where there is no sin and no injustice. Boy, I like that because you know what? I'm one of the, when I have an injustice done against me, I like to complain about it. I don't like to be treated unjustly. No one does unjustly. But here, it's going to be a holy city. There will be no injustice. Furthermore, as it is seen, look there with me, as it is seen descending out of heaven, John describes it as being prepared like a bride on her wedding day. I like that. I like that a lot. I think this is awesome comparison because 
You know what, ladies? All brides know how much preparation and care they went through in order to make themselves beautiful for their husband on their wedding day. Equally, every husband can remember the, those emotions, those overwhelming feelings that came when they first looked up and saw their beautiful bride appearing before them on their wedding day at the end of the aisle. And this is what it's going to be like for us when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. But even as beautiful as this city will be, the most important thing about it is the fact that God dwells there with His people. In light of this, I want to point out that the Bible gives an interesting record of the different dwelling places of God down through history um, in relationship to God being with His people. For example, if you look back to the book of Genesis, we're told that at that time, when Adam and Eve were on the earth before sin entered in, sin entered in that God would come in the cool of the day and He would walk with man in the Garden of Eden. But this did not last because of sin, and there was a separation between man and God. However, because of God's great desire to be with us, he had the Hebrew people build him a house, we're told, where he could come and manifest his glory to his people, and God first dwelt with the Hebrew people in the tabernacle, a tent structure, and then later in a more permanent structure called to the, te- the, the, the temple itself. The bummer thing is about, uh, about both of these, or in both of these instances, these houses, whether it was the tent or the permanent structure, is that there was this thick veil of separation that stood between men and God in order to keep men at a distance because man still couldn't be face-to-face with God. Yet when Jesus Christ came to the earth, God, according to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that God put on a tent of flesh so that he might dwell among us. And with this tent of flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, was willingly sacrificed for the sin that kept us separated from him so that we could once again have this intimate fellowship with God. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, through 20, God at that time no longer lives in man-made temples. Rather, because of God's grace through our faith, Jesus, our faith in Jesus, we have become what the Bible says the living temple of God and the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. Fortunately, that veil of separation was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. This is what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 tells us. And by His death, the Bible tells us that there's now a new way for God's people to be with God. But even though God now dwells in His people by His Spirit, we are told that God has even so much better in store for us. Since there's coming a day when we shall see our God face to face, when there's coming a day, according to what we read here, where we will dwell with Him forever, that His presence will be unobstructed. And so this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem is wonderful because as verse 3 declares to us, it says that God Himself will be there. And He will be there with us. And some of the benefits of this is described in verse 4. Some of the benefits of being face-to-face before God, our Creator, is that in God, it says, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor most, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. All because we're in the presence of God. And the fact that there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, and no more death, you know, that should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to give thanks. It's part of what Peter wrote in 2 Peter as far as the application, our response that living hope, that hopeful expectation. But you know what? It gets even better than this. You're like, better than no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, joy forevermore, streets of gold, better than that. Better than being in the presence of God? Yeah, it gets better than that. Because verse 6, look at verse 6. Verse 6, and he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I, he says, will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. You see, verse 6 here, it goes on and gives us the second defining description of the citizens of this holy city. 
The first description of the people who are in the city are they are God's people. The second is seen here. And in light of this, what we see in relationship to this fountain that God gives freely from to those who thirst, we see that the citizens of this new Jerusalem, of this heavenly city, of this holy city, the citizens there are a satisfied people. Satisfied. You know, I've sat down after like a big Thanksgiving dinner. Step back from the table a little bit and, oh, I'm satisfied. And that lasts for about 15 seconds till I start thinking about the pumpkin pie. You know, we talk about being satisfied, but truly, are we ever really satisfied? Satisfied. But yet God's people are satisfied. They are people who never thirst again. And of course, that's figuratively speaking. Meaning God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That doesn't mean that He's the book ends. It means that He is everything, the great I Am. He is the beginning, the middle, the end, all. And He being the Alpha and the Omega is the only one, the only thing that will and can meet and satisfy our every need and desire. And in doing so, here at this time, we will thirst no more. Remember, this is a promise that Jesus also made to a woman that he met at a well. And in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus met this woman, this sinner, this Samaritan outside of the city of Shikar at Jacob's well in Samaria. And as Jesus began to speak to her really about spiritual things and about the gift of God, he used the water there from that well as an illustration to her to bring understanding. And he said in John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, he said, Whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that, or excuse me, he says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And we know that the woman's response was, Lord, give me that water. You know what she said? So I may never have to come to this well again. And Jesus was speaking to her about something greater than the water of the well. He was speaking to her needs specifically because we know that she came at the well at an hour when no other women would come because she was ostracized, because she was ridiculed, because she had had many husbands and the one man that she was living with now was not even her husband. She was an outcast. And Jesus said, God has a gift for you. He'll satisfy you. He'll meet your every need, your every want, your every desire if you just give your life to Him. If you trust in Him and receive His gift. And when I read about this taking place in a future kind of a sense that we read here, you know, it's such an encouraging thing because never thirsting again means this. It's one word. I mean, we can look at it as, as with the word of being satisfied, but you know, another way of, of, of describing it is with the word contentment. Who here struggles with contentment? Those who didn't raise their hand, you, you lie. <laughs> you know, contentment is what the whole world is looking for. Have you ever thought about that? The unrest, the peace, the joy, all those things that people are looking for to fill them up can really be described or defined by that word contentment. But the sad truth is, is there is no amount of anything in this world that it can offer to us that will bring lasting contentment. And for us who are followers of Jesus, those who call Jesus Lord, we know that true contentment, which is being satisfied with what God provides, right? We know that. True contentment be, it means being satisfied with, be, being satisfied with what God provides, we know that when we do that, the Bible says it brings to us a great gain. But the truth is, is living in this place of godliness with contentment, which brings a great gain, it's a struggle. 
because we live in a temporal world which is filled with temporal things that our flesh desires. I got a list. There's a lot of things that I, that, I, that I would like to have that are of this world that I'm sure that if I got them, I'd be a little more content. If you want to know what that list is, we'll compare. However, we who have overcome, you know, we can look forward to this day when God is ever before us. And the struggle with our flesh which desires these things of this world that are passing away, that struggle will be over. That struggle will be over and God alone will be the one to quench our thirst and satisfy us, it says, for all eternity. I'm looking forward to that day where I'll have true contentment. Where every desire, every want will be completely satisfied as I'm in the presence of God. The Alpha and the Omega. Now in verses 7-8, through if you look here, we'll read on. It says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, you got it, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now this phrase, he who overcomes, which used in verse 7, is used eight other times throughout the book of Revelation. And here, the promise to inherit all things is spoken or given to the overcomer. And because this is the third defining characteristic of the citizens of this new Jerusalem, those who are overcomers, it's probably important for us to know for sure who the overcomer is. Who is this? How do you become this? How do you know this is you? You know, we get a pretty good idea of of what this is when we look to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which says... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Listen carefully. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is the Messiah. Everyone that believes that He is the Redeemer, the one who came to die for our sins, everyone who believes that, it says, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God. You want to know what that is? It says right here, this is love for God. And it goes on. To obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. The world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Our faith in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he, only he, only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the one who overcomes is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It is the one who loves God and keeps His commands. In light of this, in light of what we read here in John chapter 1, or 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, in light of this, we're reminded of the fact that believing in Jesus, listen, believing in Jesus is not a thought, it's not a feeling. Believing in Jesus is not a thought, it is not a feeling. Rather, believing in Jesus is a choice. It's a choice to rely upon. A choice to cling to. A choice to trust in Him for everything. That word Lord that we use to describe Jesus in relationship to us and Him as our Lord means something in relationship to this word believe, to rely upon, to cling to, to trust in. 
Because when you, when you call somebody your Lord, you put yourself in this place of servitude. He the master, you the servant. And as Lord, as servant, you do what the Lord says. As servant, you do what the master wills. This is why when we're told to believe, these who overcome believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's those who entrust their lives to Him that they rely upon, cling to, and trust in, follow after, commit. One of the things that I would challenge you to do is to go and read in James chapter 3 where James writes about belief. He even speaks about the belief that the demons have. They say even the demons, he says, even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It says, but they tremble in fear. They don't have what we call the saving faith where you rely upon, cling to, and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior where you take your life and you go, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he who does that, it says here, is the overcomer. Now in contrast to the overcomer, if the worship team wants to close, come up, we're just going to kind of wrap it up with this. In contrast to the overcomer who inherits all things, Verse 8 describes people who are overcome by their sins. You are either one who is an overcomer or you are one who is overcome. You're either a victor or you're defeated. And, and it gives us this description of those who are overcome, those who are overcome by their sins. And it says those who refuse, these are those who refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Because you have no power over sin. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, we're told, have power over sin. Sin no longer reigns over us. We've been set free, not only from the power of sin, but from the weight of sin and the punishment of sin. We are the overcomers. But those who do not are those who will be overcome by their sin. The power of sin, the, the, the debt of sin, the weight of sin. And it's those who have refused to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, those who refuse to make Him their Lord. And sadly, it makes it very, very clear to us here that their destiny is not the eternal city. Their destiny is the lake of fire. In light of this, I want to point out that the world today, on the flip side of things, in this backwards life that we live in, where God's kingdom is not as of this world, that, that, that this, this world is different than God's kingdom, is that today, Christians are considered, in this world, in this light, Christians are considered to be the losers. If you're, a, if you're a sold out follower of Jesus Christ who lays down their life, who, who serves others, who seeks to take the place of humility, who prays for their enemy, who turns their cheek, who does good, who forgives, who does not seek revenge, who sets their eyes on the things that are above and says that this life means nothing, the world looks at you and goes, you're a loser. Because that's not how the world is. And in this temporary life that we live in, we will experience loss. You know what losers do? They experience loss. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in this life, you're going to experience loss. But that's okay. Because a loser in this life means a victor in the next. Being overcome in this life means being the overcomer in the life to come. We will experience loss as we faithfully follow Jesus, but in the end, it's clear. Clearly, those who have rejected Jesus and taken their fill of this temporal life, they're the ones that are going to lose. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this glimpse into the future. I pray, God, that the words and truths that have been spoken and read today would find a place in our hearts, that you would help us to lose our lives while we are here so that we may gain eternity with you and every single promise that you have stored up for us. 
You tell us, God, that those who seek to save their lives will lose it, but those who lay down their lives for your sake, those who willingly lose their lives for your sake, those are the ones who will find it. And God, we have truly found life in you for those of us who have given our faith and our trust to you, who have believed in you, who now rely upon you and cling to you and trust in you and do what you say and follow you and allow your will to be done in our lives. And Father, I pray this morning, God, that if there is anyone here who has yet to do that, who has yet to put their faith and trust in You, who has yet, Lord, to be sure of the fact that their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, that are still citizens of this kingdom because they're holding on to their will, that they're unwilling to come to You. I pray, God, for these people now that they would relent, that they would trust in You, that they would cling to You, that they would see the value and their need for giving their lives to You, to call out to You to save them, to trust in You, to rely upon you and to cling to you. With your guys' eyes closed, please, if there's anybody here this morning who finds themselves in that place where you've resisted God's call upon your life, where you're unsure of your, of your salvation, you're unsure if you have a citizenship in this heavenly city that's being stored up or, or built up or laid up for us. If that's you, if you're unsure of that, and, and this morning you desire to know, you want to make that shift to give your life to Christ, to receive the forgiveness of your sins, to be set free, to have the gift of eternal life that comes by God's grace, by putting your trust in Jesus and receiving Him. If you desire to do that this morning, I just want to pray with you so that you can have that assurance. God tells us, He says, that if you confess your sins to Him, He's faithful to forgive. If you come to Him, He casts no man away. None. And He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to choose Him. He's given His life for you so that you may have life in Him and life forevermore see God's desire from the very beginning is just to be in fellowship with you to have a relationship with you and just like sin separated Adam and Eve from God your sin is separating you from God but there's been made a way for you to come back into fellowship with him and he's calling out to you just to raise your hand and accept him and receive him and I'm inviting you to do so this morning if there's anybody here that would like me to lead you in a prayer of salvation to receive the Lord just raise your hand and, I, and, I, and I'm just going to pray with you. Is there anyone? You have to make the choice. God says it's a free will decision. And this is an invitation from Him. Through His Word. Don't delay. One last chance. Is there anyone this morning? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for, for this time. Thank you, God, that we're found in you. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you, God, for this future that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may it fill our hearts with joy and peace today. Father, and as we've been studying and talking about being satisfied and content, Lord, truly let us let, help us to let go of the things of this life that take us out of that place of contentment because we know that in you, God, there is great gain. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Watch.